All right, my friends, welcome back to another episode of the Build Show podcast. That's right, my weekly time to get together with you guys and go deep. And this is the topic that really requires a podcast because we need to go deep on this. We're talking about do you remodel the house or at what point do you just go, you know what, this is crazy, we should just build a new house. And I have a lot of experience in this particular topic, especially with my own house, if you follow those videos. And I've got my business partner, Tim Hill, with me in the studio today. Tim brings us 40 years or so of building knowledge, so we got a lot to talk about on this topic. That being said, remodel versus tear it down. Let's get going. Today's podcast sponsored by our friends at Huber Engineered Woods. Now, guys, hopefully you know who this is, but this is an amazing company that really makes top-of-the-line products. I first got introduced to these guys probably 15 years ago when I had a job that I was using uh, inch-and-a-quarter plywood on that got wet and the plywood buckled, and I had to spend hundreds of extra dollars on a project that I didn't have the money for to begin with, sanding all these seams that buckled, and someone introduced me to their product called Advantech. Now, Advantech is ubiquitous now. We see it all over job sites. But at the time, for me, it was this brand new, I can't believe this holy grail product could withstand the rigors of rain and construction and not have swelling on the edge seams. Fast forward 15 years later, I've used Advantech inch and eighth or three quarters on really every single project I've built ever since. Absolutely amazing. And if you're not familiar with their zip system sheathing, absolutely bomber product that one trip around the house gives you both a water and airtight layer on the outside of your house to get you to really, really tight construction levels. So much to be said about that. But in the end, I can tell you that I used all their products when I built my house. And this is a company that I know and trust. All right, guys, let me introduce you to Tim Hill. If you don't know Tim, uh, Tim and I have been building together a long time. And he's my business partner in Reisinger Build. Uh, Tim's got, what, 40 years now of construction background, Tim? I think so. You got into the business around 1980, right? Somewhere in there. Somewhere right in there. Mm -hmm. um, so our topic today, Tim, is remodel the house versus tear it down. Like, what's the tipping point when we meet new clients that are thinking, I want to do a what I would call a, or deem as a whole house remodel versus, you know, when should I just say, look, let's scrape this and, and start new? You know, I, I think we have to understand that there is no objective line that we can draw in the sand and say, beyond this, you really need to tear it down and yeah. build a new home. Yeah, that's right. Because it's, it's project and site specific. It, excuse me. In other words, you might look at one project and say, you know what, this is a great foundation. It's got a great shape. We can redesign a house on top of this existing footprint, yep. leave the footprint, save a good chunk of money, yeah. uh, maybe leave a wall or two or three or four or whatever, and then just build new around that. Now, that's effectively a new home on an old slab. And, and uh, I'm starting to interject, but I, I wanted to mention, too, that when you do that, there's often a lot of benefits when it comes to permitting, that's right. maybe even taxes, right? Will you speak to that quickly? Well, certainly uh, most municipalities uh, have a requirement that if you scraped a lot, remove the foundation, then you fall under new ordinance and code restrictions versus if you are remodeling on top of an existing structure with some of the components are left, mm -hmm. then you fall under whatever restrictions were grandfathered into that original development. Right. So we, we, 
certainly are in a position to want to maintain as much of the existing structure as we can or that we feel like is feasible for the project uh, but at the same time given the owners flexibility to have something that's new and refreshed and has the floor plan the layout the flow that they want uh, and and sometimes you just can't get there sometimes you have to start over sometimes yeah. that foundation and the location of all the plumbing in it has that has to be removed or changed or trenched across or by the time you do all that if there are dramatic changes you've destroyed the structural integrity of the foundation anyway so you need to move on and start over yeah it's such a nuance tim isn't it in in that you know often when we do whole house remodels uh, we've joked t together over the years in our project managers that we're building a new house, but there's a house in the way. That's right. <laughs> and uh, and that remodels are ultimately m much more expensive or certainly more expensive than new construction generally because you're doing surgical work, you're carefully doing things, you're, you know, you're doing things at a, at a slower pace per se than new construction where you're starting fresh. But at the same time, I've always said to prospects, there's something about remodeling and the constraints of remodeling that can tend to be good for you. And here's the analogy I've used a lot. I think you've heard me talk about this in meetings. Uh, if you think about a shopping cart, you know, you go to you go to your local grocery store, or you get a Costco sized shopping cart. You know, I have a hard time getting at a Costco for under four hundred dollars, right? Because yeah, it's exactly. a big cart. You can fit lots in it. It also depends what goes in your cart. You, you get one tenderloin brisket or tenderloin or big brisket at Costco, and there's 150 bucks right there. But if you're buying toilet paper, right, it's not as expensive. Now, on the other hand, with a smaller shopping cart, like you go into HEB uh, uh, and you get one of the little baskets, you can't fit that much in the cart. So even if you got a couple steaks and some vegetables, it's going to be a much lower checkout price. Right than the big cart. And that's kind of what I think of remodeling is sometimes those constraints are good for clients because they they don't just go crazy with whatever they might want with a blank slate. What, what's your what's your experience with that's that? That's very true. And I think um, it, it, it makes sense economically for them to try to reuse mm -hmm. and recycle as much of the old uh, original structure and improvements as they can yep. for, for all the reasons we've talked about and more. Uh, however, uh, design teams typically have have a challenge with that because it, it kind of ties their hands for their creative um, output of whatever the project could be mm -hmm. if they had a blank slate. Yep. Now, that being said, we work with a number of architects that love the challenge of saying, Here's an original footprint. What can we do with that that not only satisfies the client's desires, but really makes a, a total new uh, impact to the site itself? Yeah. And I think a lot of them are, take pride in that by not just saying, look, anybody can design a really cool house if they have a big open flat lot. Yeah. That's, there's not a But what architects can design a really cool, nice home Get, with their hands tied behind their back. Right, on an existing 1,800-square-foot right? foundation, let's say. What better satisfaction is there to, than to say they did that? Yeah. Right. And that's kind of my experience with my personal build. Uh, for the listeners who don't don't know my story, I bought a house, uh, I don't know, four or five years ago now, across the street from my current house. And my original plan was to do a, a big remodel on that and keep it as a rental, or I didn't quite know, but I didn't assume it was going to be my house. 
And so I started the project thinking remodel, got a remodel permit, and I was going to do a pretty extensive remodel. I was going to do uh, what Joe Stebrick calls a chainsaw retrofit, I've heard him talk about, <laughs> uh, where you saw off the eaves, uh, you go back on and resheathe it, you put good insulation on the outside, uh, then you frame eaves over top of the insulation, kind of perfect wall style or monopoly framing style. I'd planned to do all that. Uh, and in my kind of naivety, I thought, oh, you know, this 70s uh, framing, it, it'll be fine. I'll be able to figure it out and I'll bring uh, our framer in and, and we'll, you know, we'll figure it out together. So the framer shows up uh, and on day one or two, we'd done a little bit of work. Bill turns to me and like says, Matt, what are we doing? We need to tear this thing down and start again. The foundation was fantastic. I live on rock. I've got a slab on grade. Foundation hasn't moved an inch over the years or an eighth of an inch for that matter. But the framing was garbage and flimsy construction and uh, just not well suited to the extent of the remodel that I was hoping to do. So we ended up taking a pause on the project uh, at that point going back to the architect and redesigning a little bit. And at that point I was like, this is going to be my house. This is going to be awesome. But again, kept the exact same footprint of the house. The only thing we added was a front porch. We poured some flat work in effect on a front porch, uh, to give a, give a more substantial front porch. Other than that, the footprint of my house is exactly as it was when it was originally built in 1978. I didn't change anything, which the big benefit to me was cost, uh, remodel permit versus new construction permit. I wanted to do some things differently. Another big benefit was I have a bunch of oak trees uh, that I would not have been able to be as close as I am today to uh, because of some, uh, uh, what do they call that? CRZ issues, critical right. root zone style issues. And as a result, I built a 20, that's my house, 2,800 square foot new house the only concrete that's original that you can see anyways is the driveway uh, and the garage floor, which I epoxied over. And then we ended up doing a uh, Steve basic detail where we did a couple layers, two layers of two layers or one layer, one layer of foam on top of the slab and then two layers of subfloor on top of that. So you can't even see any of the old concrete anyways. Right. And man, it's turned out awesome. And yes, it was a little more expensive to kind of start that process uh, rather than tearing it down. But in the end, it ended up, I think, being a really good deal for me and my family because we were constrained by size. And I think had I gone into it thinking, oh, I want to build a brand new house, I think I might have wanted a 3,000 plus square foot house and maybe had five or 600 more square feet than what I really needed. Right. I mean, I think your personal home is a great example of uh, that journey that clients go through uh, and, and finally discover that it's more important for them to have a really well-built house than it is to have uh, a more unique house that may not even fit well within their neighborhood. Yeah. And so having that initial constraint of a footprint that may be too close to a giant heritage tree to rebuild a new slab there, yep. but the old slab and that tree have come to some symbiotic relationship that it doesn't matter yeah. at that point. That's so right. it's great. It's not hurting anything, but um, uh, it, it, it seems to work well. But I, I will say that um, 
it gave you the opportunity by only having a 2,800 square foot house to put those uh, really high level building science technologies and applications into your home that make it not necessarily the biggest house in the neighborhood, not mm-hmm. necessarily even the most expensive, but certainly the best built house. In the oh, neighborhood. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Which is what I cared about. Right. Uh, and I love it. I, every square inch is used appropriately. There's there's really no wasted space in my house whatsoever. We use every part of it. Right. Uh, I want to switch gears and ask you a question from your experience. You know, I, I think a question that builders and homeowners probably more than builders even get a lot is, uh, could I build a second story on top of this existing foundation? Or could this foundation give me what I need for additional load? Obviously, we're not giving engineering advice here on the podcast. Right. But generally speaking, what you've seen out there are most foundations that you've seen that we've talked about remodels, additions. Are they generally enough to handle that extra load, let's say, of a second floor if you go from a one-story to a two-story? Or do you think that we're we're adding to those to make them work? No, I think that in the case of foundations that are not post-tension, mm-hmm. pre-tensioned rebar foundations, slabs yep. on grade, that uh, generally have a great uh, geotech substrate. Yep. Uh, like in our case, most of the homes here are on rock. Yep. Um, We're not talking expansive clay or right. crappy soil That's here. Right. <laughs> then, yes, I think most engineers will tell you, in my experience, yeah. that, sure, you can add a second floor. Yeah. Now, there are gymnastics that they some, sometimes jump through, and, and here's a specific uh, explanation of that. Um, we know that all the way around the perimeter, there are deep grade beams, mm-hmm. uh, well supported by uh, rebar. Yep. Right. And so we know the exterior walls are certainly capable of handling more load. Mm -hmm. We don't really know unless we have detailed foundation plans from the original home building experience where the interior beams are, where the load bearing points are inside. So what we can always do is span our loads from exterior grade beam to exterior grade beam. And then we know that we're sitting on proper uh, foundation support. That's a great point. So. Uh, whether it's floor trusses, roof trusses, whatever we need to do to get from span to span, that's generally how they all accomplish that. And for the northern builders listening to this, you know, think about those basements in the north. A um, lot of basements in the north that are unfinished anyways. You can see where the steel columns these days or maybe wood posts in the old days would come down and they would have a special footing in that one spot. The rest of the basement uh, the concrete is basically a, a sidewalk. It's, right, flat you know, work. It's flat work. It's three <laughs> yeah. or four inches. It might have some mesh. Maybe there's some rebar. Not intended for load, though. Right. And so in the north, uh, an engineer might specify, hey, take a saw, cut this two by two or three foot by three foot section out, dig it down, add a footer, repour it. Uh, now we can add a post, a column, steel beam, uh, column to steel beam, connection and then i can bring that load down from upstairs where right. we're remodeling or adding on have you also seen that in the south where you've got um you know typically slab on grade construction have you done a lot of that where we've i know we have but uh i'd, lo- I'd love to hear if you can think of a particular story where well sure we can always create point loads if you, if you don't have if you can't figure out how to load uh all of your roof 
and floor loads on exterior grade beams. You can always excavate in the middle of a slab mm -hmm. down to proper substrate and then create a pier within the foundation yep. that'll support any kind of column load you want to apply to it. Is, right. is that what you're... That's pretty much what I'm yeah. saying. Yeah. yeah. And and we've basically done some version of saw cut and, uh, uh, and, um, uh, and pour for that. I remember Whit Smith, who's our structural engineer at my house under construction, trying to figure out if there was a grade beam underneath an area. And he, I don't think I'd seen anybody do this or had anyone tell me to do this before, but he basically said, look, just take a, uh, a hammer drill and uh, and drill down with a hammer drill. And you know that if the drill is still drilling concrete. If it falls concrete, through at four or five inches, then you know there's nothing underneath it. Exactly. Which if, makes it go, if it goes sense. to eight to 12, you know there's pretty good chance a, a there's a great there. Yeah. yeah. And that's what we did in my house. And yeah. it turned out where we needed that point load from the second floor. We assumed there probably was a grade beam there, but he wanted me to verify it. And we went down, I think, eight inches, let's say, with a little quarter inch uh, concrete bit. And sure enough, we were still hitting concrete at eight inches. He's like, nah, we're, we're good. We're good. Yeah. I thought that was kind of a genius idea. It is. And of course, they, they sell radar equipment that will detect uh, the density of uh, structural rebar underneath, and if you oh, find right? yeah, if you find areas where uh, uh, interior beams are placed where the steel is is spaced uh, more compactly than it would be in a standard twelve by twelve, sixteen by sixteen, twenty four by twenty four mesh, yep. you know you're on top of some structural component of the slab. Interesting, and yeah. I guess if you're post tension, if uh, okay, so let me back up for a second. For the listeners who don't know what post-tension slabs are, the slabs that Tim and I were talking about kind of look like um, checkerboards, where there's these beams that are, in effect, a footing that run on a checkerboard, hashtag-type pattern through the house that are taking loads. They're also resisting the forces of possible soil movement. And the way that we like to build a slab is there's static rebar in there, let's say a a number four rebar, which would be half inch thick rebar or number fives running in a cross hatch through those beams and then through the top four or five inch thickened slab. If you don't have that and you have a thin slab, uh, another way to, to, uh, to engineer a slab on grade foundation is what they call a post tension slab. Uh, I was just at a production builder neighborhood where that's all they were doing at that neighborhood. Yeah. And it, it kind of looks like a thinner slab. I don't know what the thickness of it is. Uh, very few grade beams, some grade beams. And then these cables that run side to side on the foundation. And the cables stick out three or four feet after the pour. And then they come later and they put a, uh, a machine on one side and a deadhead on the other, or maybe a machine on both sides. And they tension them later. Uh, they stretch other way around they they pull the cable on a deadhead let's say to tension uh that slab so it's in tension after the slab is poured Correct. post that's right. tension that's right the problem with those slabs or the, one of the big reasons why i haven't wanted them to do them is if you get a tension cable that snaps uh things go very badly <laughs> in fact people could die you could lose a limb and there are stories out there of people that are cutting slabs doing a remodel, jackhammering, they hit a tension cable. That cable actually is under so much stress, it pops through the concrete uh, and shears someone's toes off or who knows what. Right. How, can you find those tension cables with a, with a non, 
uh, $50,000 device? Like, is there something you can rent or buy that would well, find those cables? We did uh, a remodeling job on Lake Austin. And this was four, five, six years ago. A uh, really nice home. The one on Scenic? Uh, no, the one on uh, Water's Edge. Oh, right. Sure. Uh, and the soil there is basically sandy silt. And at that time, when those homes were built back in the 80s, driving pilings or drilling piers to 60, 70, 80 feet deep was not practical. Mm -hmm. So the builders typically did effectively a slab on grade and then post-tensioned it. Now, there was a higher level post-tension quality than you might see in production homes. Oh, really? Yes. Interesting. Um, and so we knew that it was a post-tension slab. You could see some of the anchors and deadheads outside where the underpinning had popped off. Oh, interesting. Um, so we knew we would run into those when we moved the plumbing. And we had six, seven, eight places where toilets, sinks, mm -hmm. plumbing we're devices moving. had to be moved in the slab. Sure enough, when we were trenching, cutting, we cut some of those post-tension cables. Ooh. And we think, oh, no, this is horrible. Well, it turns out... There are companies that specialize in retensioning post-tension slabs internally. They what? have a device that takes both cut ends, stretches them, and splices them together. No way. Yeah, under the slab. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Now that's it's all, crazy. It's all done under the supervision of an engineer. Right, course, of right? course, yeah. Right. But it works great. And that's wild. I didn't know you didn't know And it really that. wasn't that expensive. Huh. So... Post post tensioning tensioning yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah really post yeah that's crazy holy cow is there any uh, in this going back to the original main topic which is uh, tear it down or remodel it basically and how do you flip that do you ever give any general like you know it's probably going to be twenty percent more to do X Y and Z do you ever give any general uh, data to prospects or architects when we talk about this. What, what, like I mentioned my shopping cart example. Do you have any that you've used over the years that, that I don't remember you saying? Well, most oftentimes when you have those discussions with clients and they're, they're sort of in the original um, schematic drawing phase mm -hmm. with their architect and yep. they're conceptually thinking about this remodeling. What do I want to convert my house into? Yeah. And the more they get into it, the more they realize, you know, we're going to affect every piece of this house. Mm -hmm. And they begin to ask themselves, well, we're not still not going to be able to do everything we want because we have, we have the restriction of the old house. Yeah. And then they ask the question, well, what would it take to go ahead and tear it down and start over from scratch? Yeah. That's a tough calculation to yeah, I mean, I, I would challenge any builder in the country to be able to off the top of his head answer that question. Talk about a wag. Yeah. So the, the answer generally is uh, it's a huge leap, uh, but it does allow us to have some efficiency in the construction process. So yeah. what it might cost in additional demolition mm -hmm. and additional construction costs for a new slab and some new framing, there's an efficiency of starting a job from scratch, seeing it all the way through to the end without the old house being in the way. Mm -hmm. So you might spend an extra 20% 
but you might save an extra 10%. So the net difference right. is 10%. So if you throw out those round general numbers and comments, it puts it in perspective and allows clients to think through the value of starting over versus not. Yeah. And quite honestly, at that point, they're usually right up against their budget anyway. Yep. And most people opt to keep the old slab or some of the old framing. Yeah. Yeah. What we're seeing more and more, I met with a client yesterday morning uh, that has a nice home. I think it's 4,500 square feet. They want to add another 1,000 square feet to it. Uh, and their question was, how far do I take this remodel? How much do I impact the balance of the house? All right. Because there's going to be quite a bit of collateral damage by adding 1,000 square feet mm-hmm. and by remodeling the, the additional spaces and updating them and bringing everything up to speed, uh, how much of that area we're going to have to redo anyway. Yep. And so I told them, I said, look, we found in our experience that what we consider a whole house remodel mm-hmm. is at least removing all of the interior skin mm-hmm. and the insulation and from the inside building back a more high-performing, efficient, more comfortable home. Yep. All new systems and components, all yep. new insulation, etc. And I said, the challenge there is you, you really don't know what's behind your cladding on the outside. Mm-hmm. We'll know more when we remove the drywall and we remove the insulation and we can view all those wall cavities from the inside. Yep. And we may find that your exterior cladding is performing okay. Yeah. And therefore, we'll just let it go. But I said, if you're going to put in new windows, we're going to have to take off a lot of the cladding anyway. Yeah, that's right. So repairing that cladding and making it looks like it blends with the old cladding. Yeah. Now we're into this discussion about now you need a new WRB, maybe some new sheathing, mm-hmm. you know. And the next thing you know, you've skeletized the house. Yep. And everything but the slab and the skeleton is new. Is new. Yeah. And interesting to note that in the time I've lived in Austin, I've only been here since 05. You've been here 25 years <laughs> longer than me. But since I moved here in 05, there's been a whole industry of some tradespeople uh, that have formed businesses and are doing really well. I'm thinking about Trade Ready in particular, uh, that are doing surgical demo work. And, you know, we can get a really pretty solid bid from a great company uh, to pull off that whole interior skin, pull the drywall, uh, and know down to the penny what it's going to cost. Whereas in years prior to them being around, we might have used some of our guys, we might have used uh, a frame carpenter, we might have used some laborers to do that, and and it's a little bit more of a guess as to how much and how much time and that sort of thing. So it's, it's interesting that we've got this whole, and now I know of actually two or three other companies besides those guys. Uh, that are out there in Austin that are doing nothing but kind of surgical demo work. Yeah, I think that's a growing industry because uh, the old days of using the framing contractors to do selective demolition to get things out of the way so they can reframe yep. is a very inefficient process. Yeah, Framers sure. do not like it. No, nope. they charge a lot of money for it. Yeah. Um, and they really just don't feel good about the end product. Whereas yep. if they can come into a project and see you know, how it's built, know what they're going to have to, to fix or change out or create new. It just makes them feel better about the efficiency of their process. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk for a minute about the difference between a whole house remodel and a partial remodel. And also, I wouldn't mind, uh, we don't have a ton of time left, but I'd like to spend a minute or two on how do we talk to clients about moving out versus staying in. 
uh, let's take that topic first, the move out versus stay in uh, topic. It's it's kind of a it's a bigger topic, but I think we could boil it down to in a couple minutes. What what do you what do you tell people when they I say, "Hey, real, can I?" I think it's real simple. Okay, I mean, <laughs> you, you don't have to ask me very much. I think if we're going to put in a new water heater for you, yep. or a new dishwasher, a new refrigerator, yep. maybe a new air conditioning air handler, uh-huh. you can stay in the house. Beyond that, you got to go. You got them all. Yeah, yeah, get them out of there. Yeah, there's just too much dust, too much collateral damage, too much noise, too, you know, too much disruption to their yeah. daily routine. Yes, people have a, a sense of privacy mm. in their nest. Yes, and anybody coming and going in their nest and disturbing their nest is a mental challenge for them. It's it's not a matter of how hard it is for us uh, or how much uh, burden it is on us for them to be in the house. We worry about them because yeah. we know from experience that it's not going to make them happy. I use the example of, uh, you know, living through a remodel as a living client is like living in prison. Yeah. You know, you're no longer in charge of what happens to you during the day. Uh, you know, if you're working from home that day and there's work going on, you're going to hear the sawzall during your Zoom meeting when you least expect it. Yeah. Your boss is going to call and the jackhammer is going to fire up. Right. Uh, or the hard part is... You know, we say the plumber's coming at 8 o'clock, but the plumber doesn't come till 10. Uh, or the plumber shows at 7.15. It's the same as living in prison. You know, all right, prisoners, get up. It's time for breakfast. That's I mean, right. you don't want to live in prison unless you are, are forced to. Right. So why would you force yourself to live in prison during this remodel? Right. No fun. Right. What was the first question I was going to or that I posed on that? I've lost my train of thought on that. You and I are aligned. We we don't do remodels where people live in the house. Oh, I know the other question that's come up, which is kind of an interesting one to to kind of end the podcast on. How do how do we talk to clients? Uh, and this is evolving for us. But how do you talk to clients who are like, I just want to remodel my master bath and my kitchen, and the rest we're going to leave alone, and I'm going to move out, no problem. But then, you know, think about the projects we've done over the years where once you get in there, they're like, well, actually, I do want you to uh, change all the flooring in the house. Or I, I do want a new uh, bathroom for the guest bath. And, uh, you know, and the project just kind of balloons. Any any advice for the young builder, young architect, young contractor listening when it comes to those kinds of projects where someone starts out with a smaller scope, smaller budget? And you just have this creepy sense, like, I'm pretty sure they can afford and want to do a bigger job, but they're, but they're not willing to, to do it at the, at the start. Yes. Um, and we talked about this in previous podcasts, but I think uh, a good portion of our job, if we do it right, is setting clients' expectations. Mm-hmm. So when you begin to have these meetings with the design team and the client, and you begin to understand the scope of work, whether it's a bathroom or a kitchen or both, um, or even if it's just changing all the exterior windows and doors or putting a new roof on, whatever it is, if you think that there's any hint whatsoever that this is more than just a very quick, isolated project, you have to tell people. In our experience, and use that phrase a lot, Mm -hmm. in our experience, we find that clients... Once they see the process and they understand, uh, one, the efficiency of doing more than less, yep. and two, um, the 
challenges that it creates if we were to come back later to do it again in another area of the house that they'd have to go through this all over again. Yeah. They realized the old famous saying, while you're here, <laughs> could you do this, right? Comes around. And, and so that's the kind of comical, humorous conversation you uh, have to have with clients and yeah. let them know that this is possible, probable, likely going to happen. Yeah. Prepare uh wherever you're going to move to mm -hmm. to have a flexible schedule it may draw out longer right. don't it, get a six month lease where you right. have to move in it may cost more out. money um you may have to move more things out of your home yeah. to allow for that uh it that's not just scope creep that's scope leap right yeah, yeah that's a great way to say it yeah that's for sure Let's uh, let's end the podcast on scope leap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we coined a new phrase. <laughs> oh, I like that, which is very uh, very uh, usual in the remodel phase. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. Tim, thanks for joining me, man. Really sure. appreciate it. Enjoy it, uh, guys. If you're not currently a Build Show uh, podcast subscriber, hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening to this. And if you want to watch this, uh, Tim and I's shiny faces are on BuildShowNetwork.com where we. We show the video version of this as well. Uh, this is our podcast studio here in Austin, Texas. Uh, we got a bunch of Rockwell bats showing throughout the studio, so we got a nice quiet space. Uh, but our construction office is on this side, our warehouse is on that side, and all our project managers' desks are on the other side. Uh, we built this podcast studio slash video studio about three years three ago. Years. That's right. And man, it's been wonderful. We've absolutely loved this space. As a as a side note, how many square feet is our total office lease space? 7,000, 7,500 square feet, yeah. something like that. And about uh, a third of that is office space, wouldn't you say? Right. This studio is probably 400 square, maybe a little less than, around 400 square feet, 350 square feet, maybe 300 well, square it's feet. It's probably four. Somewhere maybe a little more there. even, yeah. And then what's our warehouse space back here? Uh, it's probably 1,500 to 2,000. Which is less than what we need. And we actually have two other, maybe, do we have three other we storage? We have three other storage spaces. Yeah. But, man, it's been really nice. Uh, Tim and I have been uh, building together for, gosh, over 10 years now. And... Uh, You've been an amazing partner. I'm so thankful for you, Tim. Thank well, you for uh, sharing your wisdom with, is the, mutual. Uh, with the podcast crowd today. Guys, hit that subscribe button. Uh, but with that being said, uh, follow us on TikTok or Instagram. Otherwise, we'll see you next time on the Build Show podcast. Mm -hmm.